0: There are currently 7.8 million people waiting for NHS elective treatment, but the experience of being on a waiting list can vary significantly. Waiting lists can be managed in a way that addresses health inequity, but most people don't know what this means, and some approaches are not popular with the public or clinicians. Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Ruth Robertson, and on this episode, I'm joined by three guests, Dr. Mark Ratnaraja, UK Managing Director at Precision Healthcare, Sharon Brennan, Director of Policy and External Affairs at National Voices, and Dr. Polly Mitchell, Postdoctoral Research Fellow in Bioethics and Public Policy at King's College London. Mark, Sharon, Polly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ruth. Great to be here. Likewise, no,
1: Ruth. Thank
2: you. Yeah, great to be invited. Thank you.
0: Mark, maybe I could start by asking you to talk a little bit about how waiting lists in England are traditionally managed. And I should probably say for the listeners' benefit that as well as being a director at Precision Healthcare, you're also a practising uh, pediatrician, I think, within the NHS. So you have a bit of a clinician's eye view on this.
1: To be honest, still to this day, we still use a bit of a first in, first out type principle, i.e. if you've been waiting for a long period of time, then you're expected to be the next on the list. And, and that you know, that is true. If you've been waiting for a long period of time, you should expect to be seen quicker. But the reality is that there are patients with significant impacts of their underlying condition who, if they wait for longer, are likely to deteriorate, which might ultimately mean they end up presenting to accident emergency in extremis, which will then result in them having a much more significant uh, impact on their condition, as well as a much more protracted length of stay uh, and impact of uh, the type of procedure they have.
0: That's really interesting. I'm keen to ask you more about that later in the conversation. Listeners might not know that after the first wave of the pandemic, NHS England asked systems and NHS organisations to start to try and manage their waiting lists in a way that tackles health inequality. And From the conversations you've had with people, Mark, working in the NHS, do you think that started to change the way waiting lists are managed?
1: I think it's certainly on people's minds and of course there's a lot of information, a lot of data suggests that actually there is inequity in terms of outcomes of patients who have had operations. The ability to actually do something about it is much more complex though. When we've been looking at it from the perspective of supporting clinical and operational teams, we've been very cognizant of the fact that using blunt tools like where someone lives, or their ethnicity might not necessarily give a full picture because a lot of these details are very broad brush. They don't necessarily take into account the individual patient needs, and they're a kind of summary Categorization, if you will. The danger, obviously, is, is that we have sort of positive discrimination, i.e. we self-select or we select patients from a particular group just based on that demography as opposed to actually underlying their, their true condition. The way we've been looking at it is how do these social determinants of health impact on someone's clinical condition? And what we have seen from the evidence from the research we've been doing with very large-scale populations is that often vulnerable populations that are impacted by social determinants of health have a larger number and a more severe set of clinical conditions. And and certainly sort of post pandemic, I think most people are comfortable with the idea that if there is someone who is much more needy than themselves, And you can quantify what that is and the reasons for that, Then actually they should take um, what is otherwise scarce resources, so availability of beds, ICU beds and so on. But of course, we need to make sure that we are following those patients all the way through and that if we make these decisions, we're not therefore adversely impacting on other groups. So as part of the evaluation we've been doing, we make sure that there is a balance between those risk clinical risk factors as well as how long someone is waiting for. It
0: feels like maybe this is the moment to bring Polly into the conversation and um, with your background in ethics I wonder if you could give us a bit of a framework for how we might start to think about what what's fair and like Mark just said there what's right what feels right on, on prioritising people while they're waiting.
3: I'll get onto something which might sound a bit more like a framework in a second but I just First, we'd like to take a little step back and contextualise a little. So it's very easy to characterise the main issue with the waiting list, the elective care waiting list, to be a question of how to allocate scarce resources fairly in a kind of crisis-type situation. And that is a really important part of it. But the waiting list has also emerged in the context of, of um, an overstretched and under-resourced health system. There's staff with extremely heavy workloads who are covering huge staffing gaps. So even if there is a way of prioritising the patients who are waiting that is fair, but it doesn't exhaust the ethical issues. It might just be like a solution for managing a problem with a health system which more broadly isn't ethically or practically fit for purpose. So just a little framing to say we need to consider these questions about fairness alongside more structural long-term solutions and not just as if the acute shorter-term solutions sort of exhaust Um, things, ethically speaking. But to get onto the sort of specific issue of prioritising the waiting list, there are these existing principles which are used, chiefly, first come, first served. And then in recent years, there's been this increase in the use of a principle of severity. And particularly, I think, post-COVID, severity has been increasingly used uh, to prioritise the list. And so one question which emerges in relation to those principles is, Is the problem that those principles were always unfair or problematic, or does this new situation throw up new ethical issues? Is the fact that we now have approaching 8 million patients on an elective care list a new kind of ethical context? So do we need new principles just now? The principles of first-come, first-served and severity are both examples of what I'd call procedural principles for allocating resources. In relation to these principles, some characteristic that presenting patients have is identified and allocative decisions are made on the basis of that. And in order to decide whether this process is fair, we need to work out whether the the criteria that have been selected are ethically relevant, are sort of treating people impartially in a relevant way. So basically what matters for fairness in, in relation to these principles is that the procedure used is a fair one, rather than the outcomes being fair. And one concern that is commonly raised with these kinds of principles is that although they seem to treat people impartially, they actually end up leading to what look like unfair outcomes, outcomes that are unjustified or unequal or problematic in some way. So then there's this kind of alternative way of thinking about fairness, which is saying, well, what we need is is to look at fair outcomes. We need to look at the outcomes and see whether they're justified. So in relation to fair outcomes, one kind of principle that we might use is thinking about health equality and specifically reducing health inequalities It's worth noting, I think, that this is pretty controversial. It would suggest that when two people are faced with equally severe illness and perhaps also equal expected health benefit, um, it's fair to prioritise the one who's more socially deprived. Um, As Mark was suggesting, it might be made less controversial if we just think about health inequalities, reducing health inequalities, and think about it within a health framing. But some people who have been thinking about health equality in relation to prioritisation have been explicitly thinking about it in terms of broader inequalities. So people who are more socially deprived are more likely to suffer the financial impacts of waiting in their lives. They're less likely to be able to absorb the lost income, which results um, from waiting. And because people who are more socially deprived are more likely to have longer recovery times, and that's also more likely to have a a bigger kind of personal and, and, and financial impact on them. So there's been a kind of explicit thinking about not just the sort of narrower fairness of thinking about health inequalities, but more broadly, should prioritisation be used to try and tackle social inequalities in some sense in, in life a broader way. I guess one thing to say is that these kinds of allocative principles that I've been talking about is not that we have to pick one. It's likely to be that the the best way of doing it is to use multiple criteria for prioritising patients and to balance those in some way. But it might also be judged that there are some principles that just shouldn't be included at all. They're too controversial. They're too difficult to operationalise.
0: Sharon, I wonder if it's a moment to bring you in and and ask from your perspective at National Voices, how does this feel for patients?
2: So I think this is quite interesting that we talked about um, the ability to pay. Because although we don't have an NHS that's focused on people paying for care, we are seeing the impact of some of the current policies to reduce the elective recovery plan. So if we looked at the idea that you can choose from five different area um, hospitals in your area about where you'd like to go for treatment, when we raised this as a concern, it was very much focused on digital access and being able to you know, review and understand what your treatment options were. You then could go and call a national helpline, but our concern was that this is very much focused on the people who are more able to understand information. And then if you look again at the announcement a couple of weeks after that, where it was that if you've waited for more than a year, you can choose to go anywhere. We have serious concerns that people won't be able to pay for their transport to do that. We are unclear so far of how much money each ICS has put aside to help people with their travel. But also on top of that, clearly, if you've got care and responsibilities, you are less likely to be able to travel. So I think we've already got an issue where we're paying. In a sense, we're focused on the ability to pay. Unfortunately, it's not just the issue of the long elective waits, it's also around the increase in cost of living crisis, increase in financial burden, whether or not we will and won't slip into recession, the impact of volatile working and, and, and poor working conditions. So from a patient point of view. You know, when you wait for an uh, elective care, it's not just on, wait- on waiting on a list, it's everything that impacts whether you can get your kids to school, whether you can re- do your care responsibilities, whether you've got a job that allows you to work from home. Bearing in mind, we saw that in COVID, where more people were likely to die if they had a job where you had to go out into the community rather than sitting at home. So I think there's already some issues that ethically are coming up. And I actually think we're going to have to be stronger and make a clearer choice about how we prioritise people. Because the other thing I just wanted to note before I hand over is Amanda Pritchard in an NHS providers conference last week was very, very clear that the government has set, has, made, has set them a choice. And the choice is that the elected waiting list will grow in exchange for them not being given the money to pay off the, the, the kind of strike bill. And the fact she said that twice in her speech to me, put down a really clear marker that the government can't come run right into them in May and complain that they didn't reach one of their five targets because effectively it's their decision by not funding. So I think we're going to see it worsen. So now is really the time to say, is there a clear social argument and a clear acceptance from the public that we will be prioritising people based on basically, are they more likely to lie on the waiting list?
0: I should declare my interest, I suppose. I should have declared at the beginning that I've led a piece of research for the King's Fund looking at how people are addressing health inequalities on waiting lists. So, if people are interested in a bit more detail after the podcast, they can they can check out um, the report on our website. But it's so interesting to hear your descriptions of actually what this means for patients and how a patients' lives just aren't just about the the clinically relevant factors that relate to waiting. There's, there's so many other things, and I just wondered if anyone knows of examples where the NHS is trying to think more broadly than just health inequalities and and is is trying to address some of those broader impacts in, in the way it manages waiting lists.
1: So there is a piece of work that's going on which we're collaborating with colleagues from an organisation called Surgery Hero, where essentially we are providing patients with the opportunity to reduce their risk through intensive health coaching, uh, which addresses some of their chronic disease challenges, as well as their specific challenges related to the type of their surgery they're having. But importantly, Patients are referred to as members because it's absolutely important they have agency in this process and that actually the point at which they are fully optimised and ready for their surgery is the time that they should have their surgery. So if you can improve their health risk, actually the impact on the health system starts to diminish because you reduce the chances of avoidable harm, you reduce the length of stay, you increase the number of patients that could potentially be done as uh, day cases or ambulatory. And essentially, that starts to also remove the pressure on very hardworking and overworked uh, clinicians that are having to deal with and react to an increasingly burgeoning waiting list.
0: Yes, patients are unfortunately often on the waiting list for a a very long time now. So there's a lot of work that can be done while they're waiting to to optimise their health. I, I just wanted to pick up on another thing you said there about You know, you gave that example of a conversation with a patient where you could take various different factors into account, like the impact on their mental health. You can think about personal circumstances. I find it a little easier to understand and and think about the ethics around an individual conversation and an individual circumstances versus thinking about a, a group. Do we think about treating people from a particular area or with a particular income level or from particular ethnicity differently. And I just wondered, I don't know, Polly, if there's anything for you to come in on there around this idea of individual decisions versus kind of group fairness.
3: I think one really important thing to bear in mind in relation to this is that we can treat these issues more like kind of clinical decision making, where it's down to individual doctors or teams to determine, in the case of individual patients, um how to prioritize them. Or we can treat them more like sort of policy issues. So is there is there kind of like a nationally or regionally determined formula? The former puts quite a lot of burden on healthcare professionals um, to make what are potentially extremely complicated and ethically loaded decisions. And we saw a bit of this during the pandemic with the discussions around the allocation of ventilators, where, you know, this extremely controversial and often quite upsetting decisions were, at least initially, in the hands of individual teams. So one one reason for thinking about it in a more kind of policy way, thinking at a higher level, is taking some of that burden off frontline workers, so I'm familiar with an example from Coventry and Warwickshire, so University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire Trust. It's a piece of work led by Dr. Kieran Patel, and they've um, updated their, their waiting list prioritisation algorithm to consider social circumstances as well as clinical lead and, and the date that the patient um, arrives on the waiting list. So they are explicitly thinking about um, the, the non-health impact of prioritisation decisions on on social inequality. NHS England has said that hospitals should be uh, explicitly thinking about health inequalities. And I think they also explicitly mention people from different ethnic and racial groups. So that's kind of come through as a, it's not quite a directive, but it's kind of somewhere in the direction of a directive. So in theory, the the working Coventry and warwickshire is is kind of directly responding to that, but it's worth noting that NHS England hasn't given any really sort of specific indication of what that might involve um and I guess there's a worry that they're they're slightly Washing their hands of some of the controversy that's involved. Uh, this brushes up quite close to equality legislation, and it's possible that some ways of, of using particularly protected characteristics to prioritise waiting lists might end up being unlawful. And NHS England hasn't said that much about that or, or how, how to protect hospitals about that. So, another reason for thinking at a more kind of policy level rather than putting it onto individual teams or individual hospitals is kind of protection against maybe some uh, not only ethical social controversy but also legal implications of prioritisation decisions. I think what you said there
2: Polly about um, legality is interesting because obviously there's also the Equality Act that would then play for some people who are experiencing health inequalities, where would that come into? It'd also be quite interesting to see the um, Quality impact assessment that's been done on this by NHS England, if at all. The, the only thing I want to respond to is this idea of if you're doing an individual review of where people just sit on a waiting list, if you look at the people waiting for a year or more, if you're in the least deprived areas, 4.4% of people are waiting a year. In most deprived, it's 9.25%. So basically, you're twice as likely to be waiting for a year or more if you're in a, a deprived area. And I think we've really got to get behind what's causing that statistic, which is the things like do not attends. You know, we're much more likely to not attend if you're from a deprived background than if you're not. But I think the one thing I would say is I think, you know, we, we now need the government to come out and provide like a stronger direction on on where the NHS is meant to go with this. Um, it's obviously no fault of their own that the strikes have taken a significant hit from um, people's budgets. And I think realistically, when you're on a on list for more than a year, people will be saying, well, a year's a really long time. Why is my pain? not as bad as someone else's pain. And I think if you're asking the public to make judgments based on health inequalities, they'll find that really difficult. So I do think the government now needs to come out and be
0: much clearer about what it actually expects and why. I wonder if I could follow up with you, Mark, when you're talking to systems and clinicians and and people providing healthcare to help them with waiting list management. Is that something they are bringing up with you, this need for a kind of a bit of almost legal cover, stronger direction uh, from government and the centre around what they should be doing on this? Is is it something that that healthcare providers are worrying about?
1: I think for a lot of clinicians, actually, they're just fighting fires and dealing with the here and now. And obviously, their primary focus is to their patients. Um, Often that puts them at odds with national directives. So things like we need to operate on the longest waiting patients, and the challenge there is, is that sometimes if patients have been waiting for long periods of time, yes, it's very distressing for them. But also that may mean that actually it's taking the place of someone who potentially couldn't wait as long because ultimately there is only a finite amount of resource and beds to do it. I take Polly's point around. Uh, actually, that's just one angle uh, and one paradigm to to look at the the challenge. And actually, I think the question is more about what could we do about the whole health system, not just about dealing with the here and now, because it's putting people in very, very difficult positions where they're having to make these very difficult choices. And so it's important that we do see this from a a system perspective. And importantly, I think we need to see this from how we can tap into all the resources that are available to us. So social care, housing, access to ancillary services, the role of community, particularly where English isn't the first language, and ultimately look at the impacts of all of those measures in terms of what's happening to the patients. I think ultimately what this is all telling us is, is that a lot of these challenges are actually happening further upstream. You know, again, I come back to the point, if all we do is react to that problem, then we're really never going to address it in in its fullest form. We can use the evidence, we can use the data to drive decision making about actually how can we start to prevent some of these things? How can we make some decisions that take into account not only the clinical, but the biopsychosocial needs of patients? And ultimately, the more information that we have to make these decisions, the probably better it will be. Balancing that with what's fair and what's unfair is going to be always a big change. But I think from a clinician's perspective, that's not the first thing on their mind. They're dealing with the here and now and trying to get the best outcome for the patients that they see. And sometimes that's by hook or by crook in order to make that happen. And, and often the thing that's limiting them is actually the structural resource or you know, national mandates that uh, mean that they're slightly at odds with their clinical judgment.
3: I think that's absolutely right, Mark. I, I think it's really important to think about this in a systemic way. Treating the resource constraints as fixed is really a dangerous thing because it fails to recognize that there is actually the potential for more money to be put in and more resources to be put into this in order to treat this properly as a crisis and solve it, rather than to just assume it has to be absorbed into sort of existing NHS budgets and sort of business as usual. So I think thinking like about the system more broadly is crucial. And there's this really important question, thinking more structurally about whether frontline care is really the best place to be making decisions about things like social equality and and sort of overall systemic fairness. Public health has been egregiously underfunded has been systematically defunded over the past 10 years. And in order to take really seriously the impact of low income and inadequate housing and poor access to nutrition and so on on health, we have to address these upstream factors. And that's just not going to happen by um, prioritising waiting lists slightly differently. So I think the one thing,
2: the only benefit that I've seen from the recent announcement that people might have their access to free medication docked if they don't try and find a job, which National Voices completely disagrees with. But the only benefit of it is that if if there is a will, you can do cross-departmental policies, because obviously that policy would involve the DWP and the NHS and DHSC. And I think we should be looking more about how we can support people while they're waiting. And we can do that with the... The department for leveling up, we can do that with the DWP, we can do that with DHSC. So it stops being an NHS problem. And then finally, when it comes to the money as well, you know, if you look at people who are not able to work economically inactive because they're on the waiting list, I think England has one of the highest, one of the worst returns to work post-pandemic than any, any other country in uh Europe or one of. So the money is sitting there to be spent on the NHS to reduce the elective waiting list because basically we're losing it in terms of economic return, in terms of people being able to work. But because we're not joining up these budgets, the NHS is basically being told, yes, you have a finite budget to do this. And I think you've got to say like, how long is too long? So if you wait for a year and a half for a hip replacement, does that mean you'll ever return to work? Does that mean you've got to the point where you feel like you're too, ina- too economically inactive, you've got nothing to give and you've basically de-skilled? So I do think we're looking at this not in, in, the, in the round wrongly for two reasons. One is What are we doing to help people wait? And what more can the NHS and the wider NHS do? And how is the government prioritising getting people off the elected waiting list? Because it must be so disappointing to be told, you know, the strike money through no fault of NHS England's uh, own is not going to be replaced.
0: And the NHS has to kind of find a way around that. Polly earlier was challenging us on whether it's a different challenge and dilemma now than it was pre-COVID. And and those waits are... Well, not unprecedented in the NHS's history, but in in recent history. I grew up in the
2: 80s with lots of health problems and I had to have an operation on my left leg and on my right leg and on my left leg I waited a year on my right leg I waited a year and a half. I was nine or ten at the time and basically my legs were stopping bending so I couldn't get upstairs and near the end of the way, I used to practice going up on upstairs with straight legs because I just didn't understand how long I'd be waiting for so I mean, I've lived through really long waiting lists. Thankfully, I'm not living through one now. But the impact is immense because as a child, I just thought, well, I'm never going to have this operation. So I just used to work out ways to adapt. And so you are talking about significant periods of people's lives and they're doing very odd things to like manage the weight. I do think we need to do more to think about how people are adapting and then how we can help them recover afterwards. Because obviously, you're talking years of kind of, people struggling to cope with what what they're trying to cope with.
0: And you bring up another really important factor there, which is age. You know, the impact that waiting has on a child and how you consider that versus someone who's older. We'll be back in a moment. Tackling health inequalities for children and young people has never been more important with the staggering 4.2 million children already living in poverty in the UK. Join us at our in-person conference, Time for Action Addressing Health Inequalities for Children and Young People, held in partnership with Bernardo's. Tickets are £60 plus VAT. You can find the link to secure your place in this episode's show notes. Welcome back. So I wonder if we can finish with a bit of a reality check. When I've been talking to people about tackling inequalities on waiting lists, I hear again and again that we can't do that until we've got the waiting times down. We need to tackle long waits first, and then we'll have the headspace, we'll have the capacity to start to think about health inequalities. And I just wondered whether you think it's realistic for the NHS to focus on health inequity on waiting lists, given the current size of the backlog and the push to focus on long waits.
1: I think we can't afford just to wait for some magic time when all of this resolves itself because the reality is is that the waiting list is likely to go up even further and of course it's not just about the number of people on the waiting list it's the quality of life that they're experiencing while waiting
3: I agree with Mark that we can't wait until we've reached some kind of stable position and that seems implausible the way we do things creates the future world. It creates expectations for what's important, for how to behave, for what matters. And I think if the NHS is to be a more equitable institution to take equality seriously, that has to start now. It can't be something which is deferred. It's a real kind of classic problem in relation to racial inequality and other forms of inequality that there's a lot of procrastination there's a lot of deferring we need more information we need to wait until things are more stable before we can address these issues i think it's often used as a way of kind of avoiding tackling them so i think really important to factor it in i would say that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's treated as like a, a an explicit criteria for prioritization but rather that it's it's like Part of how we think about the issues. I think the health the health system needs to tackle health inequalities
2: prevention as a priority to ensure that the huge uh, growth in demand that's predicted for 2040 is somehow stabilised and managed. Again, I was an NHS provider, and I so next year is a year of prevention, and I keep thinking it's always next year, next year. But if we don't do something to right, stem the rise and tide of why ever what there's so many people waiting for elective care, and bearing in mind a, a million. A million people roughly on the on the waiting list are waiting for more than one treatment. I think we're going to be in real trouble, but I'm, I'm hoping there will be a bit of a reset and a bit of a rethink with the kind of the new health secretary, but obviously we can only wait and see.
0: Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved the conversation today and it's got me thinking differently about a topic that I've already done quite a lot of thinking about. I'm left kind of struck by the idea that the, the way we do things is as important as the outcome. And also that this work is really important and it's also quite doable that some of the problems we talked about have relatively simple solutions if we kind of uh, work across across organisations and kind of get the right tools in place. So maybe there is some hope and there are things that uh, people listening to the podcast can start to think about for their um, day-to-day practice. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Um, thank you to Mark, Sharon and Polly for joining me. Thank you. It's been brilliant, thank you. You can find our latest report on tackling health inequalities and NHS waiting lists on our website. The show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes can be found at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF And you can get in touch with us via X, formerly Twitter, Our account is at The King's Fund. The producer for this episode was Emma Sheffield and it has been edited by Bespoken Media. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.